Hi, this is Ron Darling with SNY TV. Um, you know me from covering the Mets, and uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. I had a great time. I hope you do, too. Mets Musings is an unofficial, independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. This is Len and Jeff from Baseball and Barbecue. And the one place to go for New York Mets news, past week game reviews, upcoming series previews, interviews, analysis, opinion, and and what's going going down down on the farm. It's It's Mets Musings with Gary Mack. So keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings as we try to circumnavigate and figure out what is wrong with this team. They stink. One and five on the last road trip. The hitting is gone uh, kapooey. The pitching's gone kapooey. The strong point, the pitching, the starting pitching. And now they're not getting it done. Noah Syndergaard pitches a beautiful game. Uh, one nothing, complete game shutout, and it comes back and bombs. Uh, Jacob DeGrom, struggling. Uh, Mats is on the injured list. They bring they they sign some guy uh, Wilmer, somebody or other. Uh, pitched pretty good though. Got to admit he pitched pretty good, but uh, still lost. The offense can't score runs. All of a sudden they can't buy a hit. Fourteen strikeouts. They're striking out like crazy again. What happened to going to the other field? Come on, Chili, get these guys going again. I blame the management team. I blame uh, uh, Mickey Callaway. I blame Dave Island. I thought Island was going to be this wonder bar, this, this brilliant, this pitching coach. We're not seeing it. Two years now. Yeah, the numbers look good last year, but let's see some more this year. What have you done for me lately? That's what the deal is. And whether we like it or not, that's the way it is in this town. And they're not really coming through. And 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 Brody Van Wagen in the moves he's made have all looked like bombs so far. The Cano deal looks like a bomb. Big time. Uh okay, Diaz has been okay, but still. Familiar. Oh, he stinks. Terrible deal. Terrible signing. Waste of money. Jed Lowry hasn't played an inning yet. Hasn't even had an at-bat. Though he's due to come uh, Friday and play. Hopefully. Um, uh, Who else? Broxton. Broxton. He weighs more than he's hitting. Everything seems to be... They they decide to sign Darno. Why? They would have been better off taking that money signing Mezzarocco. Why sign Darno? Offer him a contract. Everybody was shocked when they did that. Ridiculous. Now they let him go. Now he's a Dodger. We're in the Dodgers farm system. I don't know what. But he signed with the Dodgers. Just, just everything. One after the other now. I mean, last year at least we got to May and June before they stunk. This year, they're doing it early. Maybe that's a good sign. Maybe they'll get better then. Maybe they'll figure it out, the kinks, uh, especially the pitching. Pitching's been horrible, starting pitching. That's their strong point. And the offense. The offense was off to a flying start. It's been horrible. Just horrible. On this road trip. I, I I don't know. I could go on and on and on, and uh, but <clears throat> I got a scratchy throat. I'm not going to do that. I've got to read you an email in a bit. But let's let's go to uh, a, a voicemail that we got from my former co-host Barry, and he's going to sum it up a little bit for you. And then we got another 
uh, email that's going to sum up some things and, and sum up some of the frustration of Med fans at this point. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Barry, take it away. Gary, it's Barry. It's been a while, actually, since I co-hosted with you. And when we interviewed Ken Davidoff, since I made any contributions to Mets Musing. Though it's still early, it is beginning to look and feel like, as Jogi said, deja vu all over again. Another good start, followed by a now fairly lengthy stretch of bad baseball. The signs right now point to the Mets being an also-ran in the National League once again, even though the names on the back of the uniform, in my opinion anyway, should make them at least an 85-win type team and on the cusp of the playoffs. But only until recently, the starting pitching was awful, and maybe it's time for Thor to leave the premises and be replaced by a motivated and dedicated to pitching only Noah Syndergaard. The bullpen, except for Diaz, and I guess Luka, was still awful, as is the defense, and the hitting, so good to start the season, is now all messed up. No more working pitchers into deep counts and way, way too many strikeouts. And I know it has to do with options and salaries, but why in the name of Lucas Duda or Ike Davis was Dom Smith sent down while Keon Broxton remains on the active roster? This reinforces my original thought from last time of how nice a fit Marwin Gonzalez would have been on this team instead of Jed Lowry as a free agent signing. I won't get into the Geo Gonzalez not being signed issue because it's possible he wanted to go back to the Brewers since he played for them last year, they just missed going to the World Series, and maybe he thought he'd have a better chance to win going there. And right now, can you blame him? Despite the emergence of Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil, it takes time to recover from a barren farm system, which is mostly the fault of your boy, Scrappy Sandy. But it is hard to see, even though managers are just middle management types in these analytic-driven days, Mickey taking this team to the playoffs. There are just way too many are-you-kidding-me type moves he makes during the game. He does not appear to be able to lead anybody, and though it's probably too soon to consider firing him, in my opinion, and again, as Jogi said, it is getting late early for Callaway. You can't fire 25 players. Before signing off, hopefully the Crane and Ron Darling, Mets icons from the past, will make a full recovery and as hard as this normal, at least when it comes to Mets pessimist is, I will continue to try to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. And thanks, Barry, for checking in and giving us your opinion. And before we go on, yeah, he brought up a good point that I forgot in my opening, and that is Ed Cranepool had his um, surgery to uh, uh, the kidney transplant surgery and uh, no word yet how that all went. Um, I I'm, I'm, uh, believe they're going to have a press conference on Friday, so maybe we'll learn more about that. And <clears throat> Ron Darling announced that uh, the mass that was removed from his chest was cancer. He is suffering from thyroid cancer. But the doctors believe that it is treatable, and hopefully they got it early in our prayers. Thoughts and prayers are with both of you, uh, Mets. And, uh, as you know, I've met it, both of them, and they are, are very nice guys. Ron Darling was on this show. And, uh, you know, uh, all the best to both, and and hopefully uh, we're all hoping for a very quick recovery and uh, hope to see Ed Crankpool around town again and, of course, see Ronnie Darling in the booth um, calling to make games very, very soon. And as far as uh, Barry goes, he's right. You know, uh, is it too early to fire Callaway? I, I, probably so. Probably so. But I got to tell you, he's got to be on a short leash. Got to be on a real short leash. <clears throat> and if they don't turn it around soon, He's got to go. It's the way it happens, you know, the way it's got to go. Or if the pitching don't get straightened out, maybe it's time to move, get move rid of the island. Uh, I thought uh, two years ago, two, three years ago, that the guy that should have got the job would have been Frankie Viola. He knew these guys. He had these guys in the minors. He should have been the, the guy that made the, the leap up here and, and uh, be the pitching coach. But they decided to go. With uh, Dave Island and Mickey Calloway, and and uh, 
Well, maybe what they should have done is went with Callaway as the uh, pitching coach and hired a manager, uh, a real manager that knew what they were doing and not a first-year guy who uh, <clears throat> really didn't have any experience on the bench at all. But um, uh, they kind of set him up to failure, you know, too, if you will. Uh, Scrappy Sandy did. Because he brought him in and brought in uh, uh, Gary DiRacina, an American League bench coach last year. I know he's got a Riggleman this year and he's got a National League guy. But, you know, the die was set. So uh, they didn't help him out either last year. And it, it just, I don't know how much he learned or what he didn't learn. But just a lot of shake your heads and uh, wondering, what, what are you thinking? And uh, it's just, it's a struggle right now. It's tough being a fan. It's tough being optimistic about this team. We will continue to try to do so, but just very difficult. But I want to read an email that I got also about this whole situation from our good friend Jeff and uh, of uh, Baseball and Barbecue. And he's checking in and he says, hi, Gary. What is with this Jekyll and Hyde club? It is like deja vu all over again. It changed manager, changed general manager, changed coaches, changed medical staff. The more things change, the more things remain the same, especially the owners. Injuries to the pitching staff. Matson Vargas, who started to pitch better, even though uh, Vargas can only go more, no more than five innings. When the pitchers are pitching well, the bats go cold. When the bats are going well, like they were early in the season, the pitchers couldn't get out of their own way. What is with this team? They are 4-10 in the last 14 games. The Mets are just lucky that no other team is playing that well either. A lot of the losses in of the one or two run variety. Edwin Diaz giving up home runs in a tie game. Geez, if he doesn't have a lead, he loses focus or what? One of those home runs was in a 0-0 game. Look, the Mets need to score to win can't really blame him for the loss because the team doesn't score. Well, you know the rest. The worst loss of the stretch had to be the 18-inning affair in Milwaukee. Now the Brewers do have a good team, and when Alonzo hit that home run in the ninth to tie the game, you'd figure you'd have a decent chance to take a game from them. The game went long, and because both offenses took the next eight innings off, the pen was taxed. Finally, the Mets broke through in the 18th with a single by McNeil, who at this point is the Mets' representative on the All-Star team. Had to bring in Flexen, who promptly walks the park with a little help by umpire Angel Hernandez, who started to squeeze the plate. What a terrible loss. And um, to defend Chris Flexen, he did get squeezed. I mean, there were calls there. I think he had two strikeouts that turned out to be bases on balls, and he walked the ballpark, and and I really feel bad for the kid because he was in a tough spot with a bad umpire and did not get any help at all. So uh, didn't Bob Murphy, back to the email, didn't Bob Murphy say, oh, those bases on balls? You just knew that the leadoff batter who would walk, who would score, happens all the time. Go to San Diego where Jake reverts back to 2018 form. Pitches well, no run support. Noah Syndergaard needs to drop the Thor moniker and pitch better. And that's the second time we've heard that. Uh, it's become very hittable. You'd think he turned a corner with that performance against the Reds, but to pitch that poorly in San Diego, just terrible. Throwing hard isn't special anymore. Batters can hit 95-plus pitches. Alonzo hits the big home run when most of us was asleep, and here comes our lockdown closer who gives us all agita before getting the final out. A grounder to Rosario, no less, and that's an adventure too. And yesterday with Wilma Font pitching, who pitched okay since we weren't expecting much, but another one-run loss. How come when the Mets acquire high-profile second-best baseman, they forget how to hit in a Mets uniform? Alomar, Baiega, Samuel, and now Cano. Of course, the Mets had a second baseman who they traded away who went on to have a pretty good career in Jeff Kent. Okay, I went off on a tangent, but that happens when I get on a rant. <laughs> we know, Jeff. We all get on rants and lose our way sometimes. But uh, you bring up a good point with the second baseman. 
Um, they had another second baseman who looked like he could handle the bat, and that was Jeff McNeil. He could have played second. He could have handled it this year. They could have went out and got an outfielder better than Keelan Broxton. And, uh, uh, you know, and still, and, and had McNeil in there every day. They didn't need to get this. They could have groomed Kellenick for that left field job. They could have had Justin Dunn. They could have groomed for either the bullpen or the starting pitching. I don't like training farm systems away for aging veterans. Yes, I know they got Diaz. Yeah, okay. But you know what? They could have gotten Kimbrell. They could have signed Kimbrell. They could have signed Gio Gonzalez. They could have signed Dallas Keuchel. I mean, they, they could have made other moves rather than mortgaging the future. You could have got Kimbrell and got a closer. Done deal. Money. You still got Kellenick. You still got Dunn. Um, uh, let's get back to Jeff Cohen. Jeff Jeff continues. I don't blame Mickey Callaway since he can't pitch or hit for the players, but there is a New York manager about 30 miles east of City Field who could motivate this team and know some of his players since they played for him, Mads DeGrom, Synagogue, Rosario. And he would love to manage the Mets. Hey, Brody, give him a call. Thanks for letting me vent. It's a good thing that the Marlins are up next, or is it? And that's a good point. Thanks, Jeff, so much for your email, as always. Um, geez, I don't know. I don't know. Bringing Wally Backman in? I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they like him. I don't think the Wilpons like him. I think they're afraid of him. I think they're afraid he'll do something. He's not their cup of tea when it comes to behavioral uh, type of guy, and I don't think they're going to bring him in, but it's a good point. He is close. He would love to come to the major league still, even though uh, he is managing the Long Island Ducks now in the Atlantic League. <sighs> I don't know. <clears throat> I just don't know at this point. I do know that it, I've gone on and rambled and rambled, and, and uh, it's time for a break because we got a great guest on. I hate to put him on so late in the show, but... Uh, it was pre-recorded, and so uh, let's take a break and be back after this. Hey, baseball fans and book fans as well. This is Frank Nappy, author of the Legend of Mickey Tussler series, inviting all of you to learn more about my protagonist, Mickey Tussler, an incredible pitching prodigy who has autism. Follow Mickey's journey as he captures the hearts of fans everywhere with his blazing fastball and indomitable spirit. Please visit Amazon or www.franknappy.com for more information. Hi, this is the world-famous Mr. Brewtown of BrewtownSports.Potomatic.com. You know, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, Plus. Uh, Brewtown Sports. You can also listen to the show at Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and iTunes.com. And we've got the new one. It's called BrewtownRadio.Webley.com. But the one that I'm most proud of being on is BaseballPodcast.net. It is the home of great baseball talk shows. Check it out, my show and all kinds of other programs all about Major League Baseball. So check it out. That's BaseballPodcast.net, the home for great baseball talk shows. 516-619-6341. That is the comment voicemail hotline if you'd like to be a part of the show and uh, drop us a line leave us a comment or a voicemail question anything at all call that number 516-619-6341 or go to metsmusings.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen and that's a speak pipe and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com the facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings and the twitter handle is at metsmusings1 and uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show check out our patreon page check out the campaign at patreon.com slash metsmusings 
And joining me this week is Wayne Coffey. And Wayne is the author of a terrific book called They Said It Couldn't Be Done. You know, we've been concentrating a lot on the 69 Mets 50th anniversary. And we're lucky enough to have gotten Wayne on the show. Wayne, welcome to Mets Musings. Gary, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Wayne, this is a terrific book, and it brings back a lot of memories. We were talking before here about I was 16 uh, when the Mets won. You were 15 and uh, running on the field. But, um, you know, for us old guys and, and uh, Mets fans, what 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 do you think is so special about this team? I, I guess because it's the first championship, but it seems to go beyond that with these guys. Well, I, I think it really does go beyond that, Gary, and I think it has everything to do with what the Mets had been for their entire existence uh, prior to 1969. I mean, Mets fans of, of, of our age and, and older and some who are younger know, know the, uh, the whole unseemly story, but 1962, <laughs> right out of the box, the Mets are born, National League Baseball returns to New York City, and the Mets go 40 and 120. And, uh, and it takes some doing to go 40 and 120. <laughs> yes, you know, they lose their first nine games right out of the box. And, um, I mean, the year was just brutal. And then um, and the losing continued, and it continued for pretty much seven years. And, mm-hmm. in fact, in that, um, I tallied it up, and in those seven years, heading into 1969, the Mets lost – 737 games. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot of losing. And um, so I really think you know, it, it just made, it made what happened in 1969 just such an incredibly charming and, and wholly unexpected event. And, uh, you know, there was nothing, nothing not to love about this team. I think that's another part of it too. They were just, they were so likable. They were the, the underdogs underdog, you know, I mean, right. uh, right. I, I, I was telling someone earlier, the Mets, they were someone who wasn't, wasn't a baseball fan. They said, describe the 69 Mets to me. And I said, they were the baseball equivalent of the little engine that could. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, and that's, that's really what they, what they were. And, um, so I think that's that's really why it it just resonated so profoundly with people. And and I think that summer too was such a uh, historical, if you will, summer that to uh, uh, you know, uh, man walked on the moon. And then uh, if you want to take it uh, from the history point. You know, man walked on the moon. From the music uh, history, you had Woodstock, and here from the sports world, you had this magnificent, magnificent uh, event where the the lovable losers, as you say, uh, mm-hmm. who, by the way, invented ways of losing in '62 that that you wouldn't even deem possible, uh, they found oh, did, a way. Did they ever? In fact, <laughs> one of my favorite little um, nuggets from '62 that I came across. Um, Gary was so you know early on. I mean, the Mets were like uh, out of eliminated from contention like before Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it was just it was brutal. But so the Mets are on the road early on in the year, and who knows what the record is? You know, but uh, it's really bad. And Casey Stengel um, has the the traveling secretary um, Lou Nis like circulate the the day's agenda. You know what time. Uh, when they need to be at the ballpark and when they're getting dressed, when BP is and the day's itinerary. And, and on that note, Stengel writes, there will be two buses leaving the hotel for the ballpark. There will be a bus at 2 o'clock for those who need extra work, and there will be an empty bus at 5 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> And that was Casey. <laughs> that was Casey. That was Casey. And he wasn't used to, you know, with his pedigree, geez, it, he was not He was not used to all this losing. So, I almost wondered, though, if he, had, if he had to expect something. I mean, he had been out of the game a couple of years. Uh, 
you know, he was up there in age. He knew that he was going to be, for lack of a better term, the face of the franchise. Uh, he had to knew, know it wasn't going to be good. You know, he, he did have to know. Yeah. And, you know, you know how it goes with the expansion clubs. You know, you sort of get the players everyone doesn't want. And they, they had some beloved old favorites like Gil Hodges on the team and some some legitimate players, Frank Thomas of Slugger who had 34 homers that year, but but you know, they also had Mar- Marv Throneberry and um, so yeah, it was uh it was a it was a wild it, year yeah. for sure. And but you know what? I think people in so many ways Gary were so we're so happy to have baseball back. It it almost didn't mm-hmm. even matter. And I, I interviewed a bunch of old Dodger fans, and I, I'm not quite old enough to have gone to Ebbets, and I I didn't really get that fully until I talked to them, and and I talked to just about the depth of their heartbreak when the Dodgers left for right. L.A. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that never went away. And I still think even all these decades later, it's still the the Mets were born out of really out of that heartache. And, you know, I think that's why they were so beloved, even if they even if they uh, lost all those games. It, it's you know, when you go back to 69, Gary, the one thing that was striking me as I was doing the research mm-hmm. was just how much of a phenomenon the New York Mets became that year. They right. they they drew almost 2.2 million fans, and that was about 400,000 more than any other team in baseball. It was more than double what the Yankees drew, mm. the fabled New York Yankees. Right. So, I mean, this was – Howie Rose described it to me as, uh, you know, every night that summer at Shea Stadium was Woodstock. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> it certainly was. It was an event anytime you went to the game, and uh, uh, it was just, and that place was rocking. And you know how Shea Stadium, that place could rock uh, when when you went there. It it absolutely could, and 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 not only did they. They win 100 games when no one – remember, in spring training, the writers asked Gil Hodges, what's your prediction? The Mets had never never been anywhere near 500. Their high watermark was 73 wins in 68, and, and that's when it really started to change with the arrival of Gil Hodges. But so um, 69, the writers ask Hodges his prediction, and he says 85 games, and they, you know, they almost laughed in his face. <laughs> 85 games, and it turned out Gil Hodges was in fact completely wrong because they that's, won 100. That's right. <laughs> and and speaking of Gil Hodges, uh, this is a man that uh, came in uh, 62, as you say, was an original man. Uh, Came back to manage in '68, uh, put this team together, and to this day, I I still think um, he is probably so well respected, and and uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing to see a 72 or 73 year old man actually brought to tears when he talks about Gil Hodges. I know Tom Seaver is uh, uh, treated him like uh, always felt he was like a second father to him. Um, what was it about Gil Hodges that uh, uh, that that brought this team together so much, and that, that the respect is still there today? It it is still there today, and and it was just so on a, on a of course foremost on a human level, and for his family. I mean, it was it was such a unspeakable loss when he when he passed at the age of 47 on Easter Sunday 1972 it was just um, I, I, mean, I remember that that so vividly but it Gil Hodges brought to me he and I, I should just tell you Gary that every single player on that team who I've talked to said without Gil Hodges that that championship never happens mm-hmm. 100% unanimous. And and what he did was there was this, people will remember, I mean, this was in, a former Marine from, from Princeton, Indiana, who had this, he had this just, apart from his physical strength and, and stature and presence, really, with a capital P, there was this, you know, kind of Midwestern authenticity about him, this, this, this trust. You just felt like this was a man you, you know, a man's man, a guy you could you could completely trust. You could 
you know, who would always have your back. And, and I really think that his genius that year, and he was a great baseball man and did, did all kinds of tremendous things on the, on the, in the game management front, but I think his greatest achievement was, was with all his platooning and all the little, the role players they had on that team, Al Weiss's, the Duffy Dyers, J.C. Martins, Rod Gasper, those kind of guys. He, he got everyone to buy in. He made everybody mm-hmm. feel valued without it seeming like just a bunch of BS. He, I, I remember talking to Al Weiss about this, and he just said, my whole career, people, they pinch hit for me, and people told me, you know, you, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, and Gil Hodges had a way of just instilling belief in guys and putting them in situations where they could come through. And, you know, it's... It's, it's easy to talk. You could go to a leadership seminar and people will talk about motivating people and how to rally the troops, but it's a lot easier to say than to do. And, and to me, Gil Hodges, when he arrived in 68, Gary, he, he did the hardest thing there is to do for, for any kind of leader, whether it's of a ball club or a business or, or a classroom. Whatever it, whatever it is, he, he changed the entire culture of the organization. He changed the Mets' DNA and basically said this lovable loser stuff is over. Right. We're done with that. Right. And, and uh, like you said, he, he was just so well-respected uh, by everybody. Uh, I mean, Shamsky talked about disagreeing with him, and Cranepool always uh, – there were stories for years that Cranepool and him didn't get along. But uh, what – Cranepool explains is that he respected the man. He just didn't agree with his decision to bench him. And, and you can understand that, you know, uh, but a deep respect and, and love for the man. And just an amazing thing. And why he's not in the Hall of Fame is beyond me. But maybe there's still a chance. Maybe hopefully one day he'll get in there. Yeah, I mean, I, if, if anything, and I spent a lot of my time and energy in the book, there's probably – there may be more about Gil Hodges in this book than anybody else on the team. And, and the more people that I talked to and the stories that I heard um, about his, just his, his deep goodness and, and his kindness and his, mm-hmm. and his humility. I mean, this is a guy who won, won the Bronze Star in uh, serving in Okinawa in World War II and never, never talked about it, Re- you know, almost refused to talk about it, just didn't want to, I served my country, that's what you're supposed to do. He didn't want any credit. He didn't, uh, he was the antithesis of the, you know, what we have today, these kind of strutting, self-promoting people who, uh, you know, want to draw attention to themselves at every turn. I mean, Gil Hodges was the polar opposite. In fact, his old Dodger teammate, Carl Erskine, said he was the only guy and I mean the only guy who was never, ever booed, not one time at Ebbets Field. He could strike out four times. He could go one for uh, 20 or 21, whatever it was in that 1952 World Series when, um, you know, as Gil said, a couple hits by me might have changed the outcome. But right. even that, they, no, they never booed him. In fact, they were praying for him in the churches on a Sunday. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a classic story with the the priest in the local parish. That it was a really brutally hot day in early in early May, and and the people are in there, and it's just absolutely sweltering. And 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 the priest says, uh, "It's too it's too hot for a sermon. Keep the commandments and go home and pray for Gil Hodges." <laughs> I mean, who? It's got to be the only ball player who was ever whose name was ever invoked in a sermon that way. So, uh, my guest is Wayne Coffee, and the book is "They Said It Couldn't Be Done." It's a great book about the '69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding, astounding season in baseball history. And Wayne, uh, the book has been out about um, I guess about a month now, and mm-hmm. uh, doing very well. And you also have an audio version of the book out, and you were very fortunate to get uh, uh, Gary Cohen to do the audio on the book. Gary, you know, I I interviewed Gary for the book, uh, Gary, and um, he he was a great source for the book. He was an eleven years old, eleven year old Queens kid, 
and so he had very vivid recall of uh, of 1969. In fact, he told me a great a great story about how when he found out Met tickets were going on sale, he t- he talked to his mother, and and who was also a big Met fan, and he said, "We we have to get tickets. I have to go to a playoff game. The Mets have never had a playoff game, and I have I have to go." I have to be there. And she said, yeah, I agree. We've, we've got to get them. And Gary found out what they were going to go on sale at 6 a.m. the next morning. And Gary talked to his mother. She signed off on it. He went to bed at 8.30 or 9 o'clock or whatever it was, set his alarm for midnight. And with his mother's blessings, Gary Cohen, by himself, leaves his apartment in Parkway Village, goes and gets on the Q44 bus, takes it to the E train, takes it to the 7 train, gets off at Chase Stadium, Willits Point, and waits outside Chase Stadium all night until the ticket booths open at 6 a.m. at 11 years old by himself. It was a different world. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But so Gary was, he was just, it was a treasure trove of memories that he had. And, And I sent him an early copy of the book, and he and he loved it, and he he told me that he considered it a masterpiece, and I, I was just blown away and humbled by his reaction. And then I just said, you know what? I'm just going to ask him a question, and we'll see what happens. And I said, Gary, would you consider narrating the audio book of They Said It Couldn't Be Done? And he said, I would be honored. And he read every... Basically had to go. It's not an easy job. Ninety-five thousand right. words. You're basically semi-locked in a in a soundproof booth for three or four days, three or four hours at a shot. Mm-hmm. And he does a masterful job. And he is Gary's iconic voice is telling the story of the '69 Mets. And it's uh, it's really uh, it's it's a treasure to me. And and I just I get goosebumps just listening to him read the story. And, of course, he's got, uh, besides being a fan, he's got that connection uh, back to Bob Murphy, who was there for all of those, and, and Ralph that, Kiner. Yep, that's right. I mean, the, the Mets, I mean, they've just been blessed with with so many so many great announcers. And just, I, I get into anything and everything in the book. You know, I, I focus, of course, on the players and their journeys and, and how they how they got there, how they got to this point in, in time in their in their baseball lives. But I also talked to the daughter of the sign man, Carl Earhart, Earhart and uh, and Jane. Um, uh, I do a lot on Jane Jarvis, the right. the, um, the organist, mm-hmm. and I even found the guys who were four kids from Canarsie, who were the basically the, for want of a better term, the inventors of the Let's Go Mets chant. <laughs> I mean, you, you it, it's. They told me they were all Dodger fans. To go back to that, they were Dodger fans who had right. their hearts ripped out. And when the Dodgers came back to New York for the first time, except this time their shirt said Los Angeles. Um, it was Memorial Day weekend, 1962, Dodgers' first visit, and they were not right. going to miss this. And one of the kids grabbed a bed sheet from the linen closet. They got a can of green spray paint, and he just figured, well, I don't know, what are we going to write on here? And he's, he just started, hey, I don't know, well, how about Let's Go Mets? So he wrote, he write, Let's Go Mets on it. And they go to the game. Sandy Koufax is pitching for the Dodgers. After three innings, the Dodgers are up 10 nothing, just pretty much how it went in 62. <laughs> yeah. So they're down 10 nothing, and then they stand up in the upper deck of the polo grounds with their banner, and they start saying, let's go Mets, let's go Mets. <laughs> and, and people start picking up on it. And, and no one could believe that the fans are chanting, let's go Mets, in a game when they're down 10 nothing. But... Here we are 57 years later, and they're still chanting it. That's so. right. It's too bad he couldn't get royalties on that. You know? Oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, today, it'd, you know, they'd probably have, uh, yeah, there'd be copyrights and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. They'd probably, um, now, they might have a, you know, famous podcast. Who knows? Right. <laughs> now, you did a lot of research for this book, and... Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, uh, you interviewed, I, I guess, practically everybody that was that's still alive from that team. Um, 
what was the research like and and did you find out anything you didn't know i know there was a couple of stories in there that i was astounded about the the don clendenin uh and uh, martin luther king uh connection um but anything that you that surprised you at all as you were doing your research oh the, the surprises really almost were non-stop and 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 to me, that was the that was the most fascinating part of the of the journey. I probably spent two and a half years or so on this book. Traveled about twenty thousand miles. Um, I didn't I didn't get everybody because some guys some guys just just didn't really want to talk. I mean, it I, it happens, I guess. And um, but you know, you 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 do the best you can and you if like so for example Tommy Agee wasn't wasn't around he right. he he died almost 20 years ago at a at a young age and um but I went to uh, Whistler Alabama where Tommy was from and talked to Joe Agee his brother and Joe showed me around and and while I was there I went to the community nearby where Cleon Jones was born raised and still lives and mm-hmm. that that part of it um was just fascinating too. I, mean, I found out, and I had no idea, Gary. But Cleon Jones, his hometown is a place where the the locals know as Africa Town, and it's called that because it it was the place where the last slave ship ever to come to the United States in 1860 dropped its cargo, cargo. It, human beings from. Mm-hmm. West Africa, who they stole, threw into this boat, this, and um, and brought them over here to be slaves. And you, there are a lot of people in that town to this day who can trace their ancestry to that slave ship. Wow! In fact, in there's a cemetery in Africa Town, and in the cemetery, all of the graves face east because that's the direction of Africa. And, you know, this is where Cleon Jones is from. And Cleon Jones is actually not just a beloved figure in the community, but he's very much a leader, and he's trying to raise funds and and build a museum to honor the history of Africatown. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a poor place. It's... Um, desperately poor in a lot of ways and you know there are a lot of lot of struggles but it's Cleon Jones can't imagine being anywhere else and to to be with him in that in, in his own environment and to and to see it um was uh, was a remarkable experience and and again that was the that was the part of this uh, this whole process that I think I um that I enjoyed the most just going going around and visiting with these guys in their in their own environments and um and hearing their stories about how how their lives brought them to Shea Stadium in 1969 and and quite an amazing uh, group of uh, guys and and uh, stories the Jerry Kuzman uh story how he gets <laughs> in uh you know gets signed by the Mets of course we all know the Tom Seaver with the, the uh uh illegal move by the Atlanta Braves and signing him and uh, uh, just there's a whole host of stuff and it, it's all in a book. I don't want to give away everything because I want people to go buy the book. Uh, but it is uh, lots of great tales in there. And, um, you know, one person that, that uh, we never seem to discuss a lot and you don't see books written a lot, but Joan Payson really um, – you know, I'm not sure if 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 the fans even know about her today. You know, uh, that we mm-hmm. know about the Wilpons and how much they are not liked. Uh, let's say, but um, Joan Paceman was really the original owner of the Mets and was was very beloved by everybody. Oh, completely. Um, she she was. Uh a woman who, uh, first of all, she was the uh, uh, very much a, a groundbreaking individual in her own right. She was uh, the first woman to own to buy a professional sports team with her with her own funds, and and she traced her roots to actually all the way back to the Mayflower, 
And so this was old, old, old money. And, um, and she was um, a noted philanthropist, a patron of the arts, and just loved, loved baseball. In fact, when she bought the Mets, she had, to, she had an, uh, a small piece of the, of the former New York Giants and then still the San Francisco Giants and had to divest herself of that uh, when, she bought the, uh, when she bought the Mets. Um, and, um, but she was just, she was beloved and, and to, to, by all accounts, a, a really kindly, big-hearted woman who, um, who really just treated the players almost as if they were her sons. And um, I think you're right. It is an overlooked, um, overlooked part of the story. And there, there are so, there are so many. It's you know one of the one of the the unsung heroes on this team was was uh, Ron Taylor from uh, mm-hmm. Toronto, Canada, the relief pitcher, and uh, Ron Taylor was was a guy. He he may have been he may have been as as smart as anyone in baseball. He was an electrical engineer mm-hmm. for one, and then after his playing days were over, he in fact it was after 1969 he took a trip. Um, a kind of a goodwill trip, um, rally the troops trip to Vietnam, and he was so moved by the suffering that he saw, the loss, the carnage, the just the war. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's unspeakable, and and he was so moved by that suffering, he decided then and there that he was going to be a doctor and he was going to be in the business of healing and making people feel better and he starts medical school in fact he told me a funny story he starts medical school at age 35 after his career is over and he was a darn good relief pitcher who really never got wow. never got the credit that he he deserved but he he goes in and he has his he does the takes the uh the boards and and does wonderfully on them and just a brilliant, a brilliant guy, and he, and he's being interviewed in medical school, and the guy's like looking at his career, and he sees this like ten-year gap in his education, and he just said, "Well, what, well, what have you been doing?" And he said, "Well, I've been a major league pitcher," um, and he said, "Well, we don't get many, we don't get many people here who's like thirty-five years old who want to start med school," and he said, "Well." You have one now, and he got admitted, and then he became a uh, baseball fans may know, but became the uh, team doctor for the Toronto Blue Jays for for years and years. Yeah, and um, just Joe McDonald, who is the only surviving member of the front office now, ninety years old, wow. told me that um, he said they don't, you know, they don't give awards for guts, but if they did. Ron Taylor would have been at the head of the line. You know, he yeah. took the ball every time, never made excuses. Pitched in the '64 series for the Cardinals uh, against the Yankees, and uh, and then pitched and was uh, very effective for the Mets in 1969. Mm-hmm. And never gave up his his career. I remember when I went to see him in Toronto. I, you know, I said, you know, you have a you have a record that'll never be broken. Do you know that? And he said, "No, I wasn't aware of that." And I said, "You have a career World Series ERA of zero. Wow! And no one will ever break that." <laughs> and he said, "Well, that's pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a really he's a lovely man. Yeah. He's now in his probably eighty two or eighty three. Right. Just a real sweet guy. Yeah, he was one of the older older members of that team. Uh, was uh, Ron Taylor? Uh, yep. A lot of them were young in their mid to early twenties, uh, but he was uh, one of the oldest ones. Um, yep. Uh, I don't know if you got to talk to Bud Harrelson at all because we all know Bud is suffering from uh, Alzheimer's disease now. Were you able to interview him at all? No, I was. I actually tried to reach him through his um, through his wife and and one of his sons, and it just never um, it just never never really happened and and the same i same with uh with tom seaver mm-hmm. i i i had interviewed tom earlier in my uh 
my sports writing career. I was with the Daily News for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I had talked to him, but I didn't have an especially close relationship with him at all. And and I tried to reach reach Tom through the Mets and then through um, through the Baseball Hall of Fame. And um, and Nancy just his wife just was. You know, it just wasn't something that she was comfortable with, and I totally understood that and respected that. So, um, but no, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chat. I would have loved to have seen, um, seen and talked to Bud because his right. his glove, especially, was that was another one of the real key ingredients on that team. Uh, you know, for. Um, one of the interesting things when you go back and study the stats of the '69 Mets, Gary, their their offense. Their attack was really marginally better than the 62 Mets. Mm-hmm. They were at the bottom of the league in almost every offensive category. They didn't have a 30 home run guy. They didn't have a 100 RBI guy. Um, they didn't ha- even have an 80 RBI guy. Their uh, the team batting average was 242. On base percentage was, I think, uh, 11th out of a 12 team league. It was, it wasn't good, but boy, they could pitch and they, they could, could field. Pitch. Yeah, and and Bud Harrelson was a huge part of that. And and you, baseball people talk about strength up the middle, and boy, the, the Mets certainly had it with Grody, Harrelson, and Tommy Agee. All right, and and when Weiss was in there, Weiss was a good fielder as well, and playing second when uh, uh, Boswell sat and. Uh, uh, Boswell had more of the bat than the glove, or was known for more of the bat than the glove, but but played a pretty decent second base. Yep, no, that's right. And Weiss was a great glove man, and he could play any. You know, he'd play short when yeah. this was a time when guys were coming and going, doing serving, uh, doing their two weeks of military duty. So um, when Harrelson was gone, um, either Weiss or uh, I guess Bobby File sometimes would um, would play short, and then. Um, uh, you know, that just keep moving around. But, you know, they had a lot of guys who could, a lot of guys who could catch it, that's for sure. And and that's something that's foreign to uh, fans today, the, the, the military duty. It was, uh, you know, we all knew about it back then. And uh, as you said, Harrelson would have to go for two weeks and, and uh, um, uh, a couple of the other guys and and Nolan Ryan had a, a thing too I, if I recall yes he did uh, you know he was gone in between that and he had some kind of niggling injuries all year so he was he was kind of in and out the whole year um, but um, yeah so this is why uh, this was as much a team effort a true team effort as any as any World Series run that it has ever been and. Um, you know the the other thing that's sometimes lost in in um, sort of in the in the euphoria at the end of the season, Gary, is that it, for for all the great things the Mets did this year and the crazy games that they won uh, in 1969 on on August 13th, right before Woodstock was starting, they had, they had kind of stumbled out of the uh, out of the All Star break and and the Mets were. Ten games out of first place, mm-hmm. and in, and had slipped to third. The Cardinals had uh, moved ahead of them. The Cubs were just crushing everyone and looked like they were about to run away with it. And from that point on, when the Mets were ten games out, they went thirty-eight and eleven to finish the year. What? And and they did that with these just astonishing contributions from in in August and September. Guys like. That you don't hear nearly enough about Jim McAndrew, uh, Don Cardwell, Gary Gentry. These guys were pit- they were lights out pitching, and um, and the Mets just just went on this roll and never stopped. They went thirty eight. They go thirty eight and eleven, and then they win seven of eight games in the postseason. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think you know uh, we missed that fact that they. Uh, they weren't good that whole year. They were good for the Mets, but at the end is when 
Um, they really turned it on. And as you say, everybody contributed that. I mean, I can remember, well, even in the postseason, you know, uh, Nolan Ryan against the Braves uh, coming yep. in. And, of course. Yeah, don't you love it when people talk about how daring it is, like when a guy gets a four-out save? Yeah. <laughs> and, well, in the, in, the, in the game three against the Braves, Nolan Ryan came in with nobody out in the third. Nolan Ryan had a seven-inning save. Yeah. That's 21 outs. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty good outing. Um, that was the other thing about this team. You know, Kuzman and Seaver, they, they won 18 of 19 down the stretch, and almost all of them were complete games, mm. which baseball fans of, like, of your age and my age will, uh, we remember what complete games were. Right. But the Mets had 51 of them in 1969, wow. 51 complete games as a team. And last last year, Noah Syndergaard led the Mets with two. Two, I was going to say. Yeah, he, and he had one yesterday. So God bless him. But um, it's um, yeah, the game's changed a little bit. I'm not even sure they had 51 in the whole National League or or Major League Baseball last year. No, actually, I lo- I looked last year in Major League Baseball total, there were not 51 complete games. It's it's incredible, isn't it? How much that's changed and. And yet there's more injuries today, more arm injuries, I think, today than ever. Or, or we just know about it more. Maybe that's part of the reason, too. But uh, Well, I, I think it's – I mean, this is another, another discussion, but I just think – and I know a lot of old-school pitching people will think that these, they have it all wrong today, that they baby the, the guys too much, and I'm – I don't know, and I'm not a doctor, and I don't know enough about the. I know there've been a million studies done, but, but I will tell you that it sure seemed as if there were a lot fewer arm injuries. And there was a game talk about you know pitchers and their durability that year, and this this typified what the Mets those Mets were all about. Juan Marichal pitches is pitching against the Mets. They always had a brutal time against him, as most teams did, mm-hmm. but. He shuts out the Mets for nine innings, and the Mets being the Mets, they were, they were also shut out. So it's 0-0 after nine. Goes to the 10th, Marichal comes out, scoreless 10th. Goes to the 11th, Marichal comes out, scoreless 12th, Marichal, scoreless 12th. 13th inning, same thing. Marichal comes out for the 14th inning. It's still 0-0. He gets the first two outs, and then Tommy Agee hits a home run. And the Mets win one nothing. That was Marichal's 151st pitch of the game. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Pitching coach would go to jail if he did that. Now. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know they talk about Santana with the hundred and whatever 127 and the no hit it ruined his career. But uh, uh, and he and and Marichal also pitched in that uh, that famous game against Warren Spahn, wasn't it? Uh, they both went. 10 or 12 innings or something. Yeah, there was another, yeah, yeah. there. So he No, yeah. a lot of a lot of pitchers were would do that. The Mets, I mean, this is just astonishing to think about now, but the Mets best relief pitcher in 69, Tug McGraw, never got in the World Series. Yeah, I was surprised when I read that. <laughs> Never pitched and, in the World Series. And Jim McAndrew didn't throw a pitch either. If, if no, I, he didn't. Yeah. No, nope. Jack, De, Jack DeLauro didn't throw a pitch. Wow. There were, um, yeah, no, it's, but there were, you know, so Marichal, that was just one crazy game. There was the, the game against the, the Cardinals where Steve, Steve Carlton set the all-time strikeout record right. at the time, <laughs> 19 strikeouts, and loses 4-3 to three to the Mets because Ron Swoboda hit two two-run homers. <laughs> and I think he struck <laughs> out the other two times, right? He did strike out. And <laughs> after the game, Swoboda, you know, he's, you know, you got to love the guy. He's, you know, he's, he was funny and smart, and it was like he took truth serum, you know, and he just said, well, he got me twice, I got him twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the other, uh, the uh, the other was it a doubleheader? I think with Cardwell and Kuzman, both drove right. in the winning runs, and when both games they won one nothing, I believe. Or two, that's right in September in Forbes Field, yeah. and it was according to Elias Sports Bureau, it was the only time that has ever happened in baseball history. Two one nothing games where the winning run was driven in by the pitchers, and I talked to Phil Regan. Uh, of the Cubs, and who's now a minor league pitching instructor for the Mets, mm-hmm. by the way, at age 82. Yeah. 
and he's a great guy and has an insanely good memory. And Phil, Phil was he was the the star relief pitcher for the Cubs, and now they're they're imploding in September. And and he told me he remembered looking at the scoreboard and seeing one nothing, one nothing, and finding out that the pitchers drove in the runs. And that's when he 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 just kind of shook his head and he said, "This is." This is crazy stuff. I mean, what what is going on? Like, it's uh, and it just you know the the games, the wacky games, just went on all year long. It was well, we we know that the Mets won it. I mean, they put it together, but uh, the collapse by the Cubs is something uh, that uh, you, you was was something to see as well. And of course, the belief is that. Uh, um, one of the problems was that they played day games at the time. Yes, folks, the young people out there, they didn't have lights at Wrigley Field uh, or, uh, until, what was it, 1990-something uh, or other. Uh, mm-hmm. The date escapes me now. Um, so they played all their games at daytime, and uh, and DeRosha had a short pitching staff and really – uh, they think drove those players into the ground, and uh, that's one of the reasons that their collapse was imminent. What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's what you know. That's what Phil Riggin thinks, for absolutely for sure. That, and he just said we by September we were just completely gassed. And when you look at it, the uh, you look at the Cubs stats. It's er- Ernie Banks, the great Ernie Banks, Hall of Fame first baseman, was. 38 years old in 1969, he played 158 games. Wow. Randy Hundley, the catcher, played 151. Hmm. He would never use anybody else but Phil Regan in the bullpen. In fact, with a couple of the other relievers, Don Nottabart was one of them, and there were a couple other guys who would get up and throw on their own. Just They said... Just they'd never get into a game, but they would get up and throw in their own, just so their names would get mentioned in the press box. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean the Cubs. I think they went eight. They finished the year eight and eighteen. I think over their last twenty six games, so wow. um, it was pretty much a free fall. And it didn't. It didn't hurt. Uh, you know, it didn't help them having somebody breathing down their necks either. I guess that pressure. And 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 Leo DeRoche could be a bit of a uh, well, it's a family show, so I can't really say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may want to hold back there yeah. a little bit, but he he was not um, he was not everybody's favorite flavor. No. Um, <laughs> well, Wayne, we could talk all night, but uh, <laughs> I gotta let you go. And uh, again, the name of the book is "They Said It Couldn't Be Done." It's a terrific book. Add it to your library. I know there's a lot of books coming out now um, on the 69 Mets, but uh, this is one you should add as well. It's it's a, a terrific history of the event, and the young fans should get it as well uh, so they can learn the history of their team that they uh, root for now. And uh, if you don't like reading a book, Get the audio book. It's written, I mean, it's it's voiced by Gary Cohen. What more could you ask for? So. Yeah, that's right. He's the top of the charts. So. <laughs> and, Wayne, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out this evening. Um, any more book signings around or dates that we can uh, uh, possibly see you at? Well, it's, um, I am actually, I'm not sure when this is, uh, this is going, um, going up gary but i am going to be at uh at uh it's a little bit out of the city so it's a little bit of a road trip but um i'm going to be at greenwich public library uh next wednesday may 8th uh with tyler kepner who is a tremendous uh baseball columnist for the new york times and the author of an of an acclaimed new book called k a history of baseball in 10 pitches mm-hmm. and it's um it's a bestseller Tyler is just is a really gifted writer and reporter, and uh, so we're going to be we're going to be there together. Um, I'm actually going to be at the Baseball Hall of Fame in June. Um, there are going to be some other events coming up, but the best thing for people to do, I have a a website which is WayneCoffeeAuthor.com, and uh, the 
the uh, the places, the events I'm I'm doing and where I'll be uh, will be on there. So okay, we'll be sure to check that out. And and what's up next for you? Another book in the works or? Uh, yeah, we've got. There are a couple of candidates. We're still um, we're still kind of knocking them around. Nothing is nothing is firm yet, but um, I've pretty much always got um, always got a book going, and um, you know, it's what uh, it what revs revs the old uh, revs the old engine, and um, and since I'm, um, I'm I have to, uh, a half a century removed from 1969, the engine needs revving. Yeah. So, um, I gotta work keeps me young, so that's right. We're we're still very young, Wayne. Remember that. There we go. <laughs> I like the way you think. Okay, and uh, thanks again for coming on. And I'll be back right after this. Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C Seventy. My name is Daniel Shopdaw, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the internet today about their teams. It always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website www.cardinal70.com or at baseballpodcast.net Baseball and BBQ your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history Baseball and BBQ your place for barbecue recipes tips and interviews from the world of barbecue If you like baseball and if you like barbecue then tune in to Baseball and BBQ Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts. With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. Okay, we're back, and uh, boy, I, I I still don't know what to say. I mean, it's 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 a tough row. It's it's really tough. Uh, Marlins come into town. We'll see if they can turn it around against them. I, I don't know. I don't see it, but uh, something's got to shake this team up, whether it's got to be a coach going or a manager going or something. Uh, I guess the, the most logical person to go, if anybody, if you just want to do a coach, would have to be uh, the pitching coach, I guess. You're not going to get rid of Chili Davis. You just brought him in, and and his philosophy was working. If you don't want to get rid of Callaway right away, you're not going to get rid of Regelman because you brought him in. You need that experience there in case you decide to get rid of Callaway. So what's left? <clears throat> the bullpen coach? Yeah, you know, all right. It's not going to shake the team up a lot. Um. <clears throat> Dave Island is the guy, I guess, that's got to go. I don't know. Uh, just a wild guess. We'll have to see what happens. Um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> as I said, I got a scratchy throat. You can hear me clearing it. So I'm going to wrap this show up for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank my guest, Wayne Coffee. He was terrific. And I want to thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you listen or watch the podcast. Hit the subscribe button. That helps me grow the show and expand to new listeners. And until next time, as tough as it is, Met fans, keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go. Take care, everybody. I'll see you next time with another edition of Mets Music.